Book Choice is brought to you by Exclusive Books, celebrating getting more books to more people. Welcome to Book Choice on Fine Music Radio with me, your host, Paige Nick, sponsored by Exclusive Books. So here's the thing. We have so many amazing book reviews and author interviews to share with you today that I barely even have time to tell you how many amazing book reviews and author interviews we have to share with you today. So you may want to grab a pen in case any of these titles appeal to you. Then strap in and prepare yourself to be blown away by the most exciting reads you'll find on your shelves this month. Let's get started. First up, Beverly Ruth Miller is going to get the show started with a review of Burnham Wood by Eleanor Catton. Catton is the author who won one of the world's biggest literary prizes, the Booker Prize, back in 2013 for her novel, which was called The Luminaries. At the time, she was the youngest winner ever at 28 years old, and that novel was an 832-page Victorian epic. I'm told her latest, Burnham Wood, is quite different, and I'm keen to hear what Beverly thought of it, uh, because this one's definitely on my wish list. We all know perfectly well that we can't exist without food and that we can't exist healthily if the food itself and that land that it is grown on is unhealthy. So why out of greed do we keep poisoning the planet? We can't eat money, though edible currency may end up being quite useful. This may seem a bit of a ramble, but these are questions at the core of the marvelous new book by prodigy Eleanor Catton, who in 2013 became, at the age of 28, the youngest woman winner of the Booker Prize. Her latest novel, Burnham Wood, is more accessible and contained than her Booker winner, The Luminaries. It is also set in her former home of New Zealand, attacking and interrogating the confounding, divisive and critical world of food production versus raw capitalism, though it is not an earnest slog, rather written with wit and insight. An off-the-grid gardening collective of environmentalists stealthily take over a seldom-used distant farm in New Zealand's South Island after a rockfall has closed off the pass. It is owned by Sir Owen and Lady Darvish, now mainly city dwellers, who have loaned their farm to a charming billionaire, Lemoine, whose private mission is to strip the land of scarce metals while building a bunker to survive the world's end as if his genes were the ones worth preserving. Oh yes, he's a narcissist. What happens next is a clash of conflicting interests, all heavily disguised to each other. Mira is the young woman seeking a purpose. Her old friend Tony is a journalist wannabe who needs a big scoop. These guerrilla gardens are fairly innocuous unless you dislike the idea of underutilized land being productive for growing crops along motorways or ramps street corners, otherwise wasted space, yet it causes conflict in municipal circles. Even our own city of Cape Town disallows cabbages and such burgeoning food along the pavement, which I find baffling. Free food? Come on! You will likely have spotted the title's connection to the Scottish play, Macbeth, in which an autocratic king with a fierce wife meets a sticky end. The quote is, Macbeth shall never vanquish be, until great Burnham Wood to high Dunsinan Hill shall come against him. Macbeth thought this omen from the three witches meant that he would remain all-conquering. After all, trees don't walk, do they? Ah, the vanity of power. He realized too late when soldiers camouflaged with the branches of trees advanced to kill him. 
I don't want to spoil the plot, which is deftly handed in a modern idiom. This is a gutsy page-turner of a book. Cutton is unafraid to seize words and wield them with gusto. I particularly like this fairly simple passage about a garden. Right was not the opposite of wrong. To learn even something as simple as to water the roots of a plant rather than its leaves was not to be dealt the harsh reality of a cold, hard fact, but rather to be let into a secret. In a garden, expertise was personal and anecdotal. It was allegorical. It was ancient. It had been handed down. One felt that gardeners across generations were united in some kind of guild. Now I want to read it again. I'd be very surprised if this did not turn out to be another award winner, but mostly it's a thunderingly good read. I've been talking about Eleanor Catton's Burnham Wood. Thank you, Beverly. Burnham Wood is officially something I definitely want to read now. Shirley Gwela joins us now with a review of a novel called In the Upper Country by Kai Thomas. Hi, Shirley. I doff my hat in respect to the Canadian book publishing industry, which is very active with many independent publishers who, with small runs, are committed but don't get rich. The same goes for authors, and Kai Thomas, who wrote In the Upper Country, is one of many for whom writing doesn't pay the bills. He is, in the cover note, a writer, carpenter and land steward. I hope with this book he makes enough to concentrate on writing. This is a history, written as fiction, and from the perspective of segregation and integration of slaves and bounty hunters, indigenous nations and American refugees, and put on paper by a man of Trinidadian descent. In it, Canada's reputation for generosity of spirit and its open-armed policy to refugees and immigrants is manifest in this an earlier resonating melting pot of blacks, whites and Indians. It took me a long time to get to grips with it, for there were times that I needed to read again slowly, because there are a lot of characters, and it is meandering in style, perhaps appropriate to the mighty St. Lawrence that twists and turns as it flows in and out of the Great Lakes, where the novel is based. He changes the spokesperson from time to time, so the authorial I, as in male or female, needs to be clearly observed to avoid confusion. And also, the question of national identity is somewhat muddied as borders are crossed and conditions change. Lincinda is a young journalist, educated by the kindness of a white man, with a lot of spunk. She is told to interview, against her desire, a former and equally gutsy, much older, weather-beaten, fleeing female slave, pursued across the border by a bounty hunter whose life she then took. And that's the crux of the story, set in the cross-border settlement at Dunmore that housed many slaves and people therein, and above all the stories of their past. Essentially, it is two stories, that of Cinder, who was sure of her past, and of the old woman who was nameless for much of the story, and whose name I won't reveal, for this would spoil. The old woman didn't want to be interviewed, but she agreed only if it was done by young Cinder, not her boss, the seasoned journalist Arabella. This was conditional on the trading of stories, And so the stories blend, stories about love and life, survival, intermarriage between black and Indian, and how all arrive in the upper country at the end of the Underground Railroad escape network. You travel through war and peace in the early 1900s, and Cinder's mid to late 1880s personal peace, which is shattered, then pieced together to give her peace of mind. 
The stories are of hardship and resilience, of horse trading, when that horse is a white boy enslaved by Indians who had their own forms of slavery, more brutal but less hard, the author writes, along with, slavery is unnatural indeed, but the bonds of love that emerge are no less strange and powerful than those between free men. They both confront what has happened in their two lives, one quite short and the other quite long, and each is jolted in different ways. The rights and the wrongs, the justifications and the sweeping under the carpet, and ultimately you aren't quite sure if the the old woman will hang for her offense or not. Tales of survival are always powerful and this is no exception. Comparisons between the two women were not limited to their stubbornness and it was the revelation late of a secret that was to bind them and ultimately change Cinder's life and how she viewed herself. More than anything the novel is about Ubuntu, kindness to others, the spirit of a community and the value of sharing. It makes you think. Welcome back to Book Choice on Fine Music Radio, sponsored by Exclusive Books. That track was C'est Magnifique, You Do Something to Me, I Love Paris. It was a melody of tunes from Cole Porter's musical Can Can, played by pianist Freddie Carl. All the music in today's show comes from Cole Porter and has been curated and compiled by Dave Wood and Rick Everett, and we're eternally grateful to them. But this is the one time on Fine Music Radio where we say enough about the music, let's talk about the books. For our first of three interviews on the show today, we welcome Philip Todras, who will be chatting to Joanne Jowell about a book called I Am Ella. This is a remarkable story from Auschwitz to Africa. It's a survivor's memoir that's just been released by NB Books. Hi, Philip. Hi, Joanne. I'm looking forward to hearing this. I Am Ella, a remarkable story of survival from Auschwitz to Africa by Joanne Jowell. And I have Joanne with me right here. And what I'd like to talk about is, it's a phenomenal story, we know about that, but we're talking about history. 
except this time we're talking about her story, not his story. And it's also got a very feminine angle because you are the interviewer and you also interview her daughter and her granddaughter. And you make a very specific pronouncement and you're very much part of the story because, as you say, it's not enough that we know her name or recognize her voice. It is not enough that Ella, the survivor, bears the burden of bearing witness. That task falls on all of us. And you make that commitment and your voice does come through. I'd like you to comment about that and how that affects the telling of her story. Mm. Because very much I think the issue of writing the story is about accepting a sense of responsibility. On me personally, as a writer, as a woman, as a member of the South African Jewish community, but broadly as on me and on all of us as humans. I think somewhere else I say it's, 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 the, it's the moral obligation set upon humanity by inhumanity. And I think so my way in and my access point into the story is very much about understanding and taking on and embracing that responsibility and trying to tell the story in a way that has us all understand that we all share that history actually whether you are a child or a grandchild of a survivor whether you are jewish or not jewish whether you have any connection to the second world war that you know of or don't um i think that responsibility falls to all of us and, and ella is our guide to helping us understand how we should shoulder it and how we can bear, best live with it well she remarks there is no time for tears mm. Is it really true when you went through that story that she is so brave and so rebellious that that was part of what how she managed? Mm. I think that is so much part of her personality, that feisty, mischief, naughtiness and doer, just an absolute doer and go-getter is very much part of her personality and part of what makes her special and able to survive. Um, but it's only one part. And I think that Ella, while there were... In that particular moment, there was no time for tears. She had to find through the rest of her, her life where she could find the time for tears because to ignore them or to not cry or to not fully embrace and understand the extent of her trauma would really be to re-traumatize and to, and to continue the trauma into future generations. So I think she found the time for her tears, but the, really the bedrock of her personality is about this feisty, incredible positivity. And it's that that infuses her, her outlook on life and that she has taken far beyond the war um, and and bred into her family. And that is really the diet on which they were raised, a, a diet of of not only surviving but thriving and finding how to live with, with, with positivity. Also from a point of view that she was ahead of her times in many ways in terms of being a businesswoman and mm. not just devoted to the children and the family, mm. yet she doesn't really spend very much time on that. And I just want to comment is perhaps maybe something she hasn't processed because after getting through what she has and then coming to South Africa, mm. there's not very much about the marriage. And in fact, it seems almost unbelievable that within 12 days, you decided who you're going to marry and boom, you're in a new country without a language. Mm. Perhaps she's not really wanting to go there. Perhaps. It's a good question. I think she is such a dominant force in the family, um, not only as matriarch, but um, you, you know, she, she, her influence in her, in, in her children's lives and in her community's lives is so, so pronounced. And even as a personality, I think her late husband Isaac was far softer, 
was far, and, 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 and I mean in terms of volume, I think that he very much was there as a quiet, gentle support, but not as an overt one. And Ella very much set the tone, I think, for their family and for, for their family life. Even in business, if where he would have been perhaps, you know, more of the, the, the actual perhaps qualified accountant type, Ella had it bred in her bone and she had that business, feisty businesswoman way about her. And so she really led from the front, I think, in that way. And in that way, she is unusual as well in the marriage. Her business and her children were her absolute focus. As devoted as she was as a wife, she lost her husband many years ago and created an, a second life after he died which also had her coming to terms with her Holocaust past, something which she couldn't really talk about when he was alive because he, he was not of that generation that wanted to, to hear it. I think that's also an important aspect that you have raised in terms of the third generation. You talk about, I began to think about the publication to understand the book's most important mission to reach the third generation. Maybe you want to just comment about mm. the response and what you have found now that the book is out? It started very much with my own children, and the book, in fact, actually does start with my eldest son observing Yom HaShoah Holocaust Memorial Day during lockdown. But I felt very keenly the immense privilege of building a personal relationship with a survivor. There are not many survivors who are still alive and, and, and here sharing their, their wisdom and their knowledge and their trauma with us. And after every interview with Ella, she would send me packing with a, a whole bunch of biscuits that she had baked and I would bring them home and my kids started to look forward to, to getting biscuits from Ella. And in that way, she built her own personality in my family and I just started to feel really keenly that I wanted them to have a sense of, of a relationship with her, with a survivor, with somebody as legendary as Ella has become. And the book is really a way to do that. It's not written for young adults, as it were. It's not a, a, a kid's book. It is very much an adult's book. But it's one that I hope that, that parents will share with their children and then that their children will go on to read because at the end of the day, you feel you have met and lived with and shared time with and eaten biscuits with a really remarkable person. I think you certainly have captured it in the words of Mandy Wiener. She says, Ella Blumenthal has a unique soul inspirational tale of resilience and survival and a zest for life is a lesson for us all. But the fact it's a lesson for us all that you found that unique soul and that comes out very clearly in the book by Joanne Joel, I Am Ella. I've got you under my skin I've got you deep in the heart of me So deep in my heart you're really a part of me I've got you under my skin I tried so not to give in I said to myself this affair never will go so well But why should I try to resist when darling I know so well I've got you under my skin 
I'd sacrifice anything, come what might, for the sake of heaven you near. In spite of a warning voice that comes in the night and repeats and repeats in my ear. Around you, no little fool, you never can win. Use your mentality, wake up to reality. But each time I do just the thought of you makes me stop before I begin, cause I've got you under my skin. For the sake of heaven you near In spite of a warning voice That comes in the night and repeats Right in my ear Don't you know, little fool You never can win Just use your mentality Wake up to reality But each time I do just Before I begin, cause I've got you under my skin, under my skin, under my skin, under my skin. We just heard I've Got You Under My Skin, sung by Danny Williams, and you're tuned into another episode of Book Choice on Fine Music Radio. With me, your host, Paige Nick. We're here every second Tuesday in this slot to talk about books for an hour. And this show is sponsored by Exclusive Books. Back to the books now, as Beryl Eichenberger chats to author Gail Gilbride about her book, Cat Therapy. So cats and books, I mean, can you go wrong? If you're a cat lover, then you'll know there's something so very comforting about the plop of a warm, furry body snuggling next to you when you're feeling low, sick, or simply tired. It's as if there is an unspoken agreement that there's healing in that snuggle as loud purrs ripple across the bedclothes. You reach out an arm to stroke the warm, curled body and suddenly a glimmer of light flickers at the end of the tunnel. When that tunnel is through cancer, that comfort is even more intense. Gail Gilbride's unplanned memoir, Cat Therapy, is a tender, honest diary of her healing journey through cancer in the time of corona. Gail, we spoke about that first diagnosis and you had basically left what you knew could possibly be cancerous or at least it was there and gone off to do what you wanted to do. Tell us a little bit about that first. Yes, well, um, thank you for the question, Beryl. And thank um, you for being with us. <laughs> oh, it's such a great pleasure. Thank you. Yes, I did. I went traveling um, and to Russia, which uh, nowadays I wouldn't go to. <laughs> and I knew that I had a lump in my breast. But I just thought, well, that's, you know, it's, it's fine. It's just a little lump and I'll sort it out when I come back. And I'm invincible, you know. As we all are, <laughs> of course. And um, I didn't bother too much about it. But deep down, while I was walking the streets of Moscow, I did know. I did know deep down that I was in trouble. Mm-hmm. And But of course, I pushed it away. And 
In fact, when I got home, I didn't even go to the doctor straight away then. Well, you said that you had white coat syndrome. Yes. So that was stopping you. Yes. But when you finally went, it was August 2019. That's right. When I finally went and I was given the diagnosis of breast cancer and not stage one, stage three mm. breast cancer, I didn't believe the doctor. I thought, oh, I'm sure she's got the wrong file. You know, that she can't be talking about me. She's probably talking about the patient waiting for just after me. So I went into classic denial mm-hmm. and thought, I don't get sick. You know, I'm, I'm this healthy girl, woman, and um, I don't really get sick. So this can't be me. But I, I was with the most fabulous doctor and she kept eye contact until I, I registered that what she was saying was true. And then you went home and you had this wonderful ginger cat, Archie. And it was almost as if he knew. But tell us more about Archie. Okay, Archie is actually our daughter's cat. And he came to live with us, fell in love with our garden, and he never wanted to go back to a flat. And he was, he's a naughty wild cat who's still quite a hunter and is, can be very grumpy and even bite and scratch. But when I got sick, he, he seemed to go into a different mode. He became a, a healer. He never left my side. He cuddled up to me. I got purrs and massages that I'd never had before. And whenever I was in bed, he was there. And I got that feeling that he really was trying to look after me. I think and, ginger cats do have a... There's something very special about them. Yes. I, I had a ginger cat and he... Yeah, he was completely different to my other cats. He sort of was my mate. Yes. And was always there. So Archie was by your side throughout all your treatment, but you didn't just go for the conventional treatment. I know you had chemo and you had several bouts of chemo, but you also looked at alternative treatments, and that also made you look inwardly, which is what you recorded as part of your diary. Yes, When I was writing this diary, I was trying to process what was happening to me to come to terms Mm. with it. I also had a very strong determination to live. I decided that there's no ways I'm not I'm not clocking out. Too many things to do still. Yes. (laughs) And so I had this very huge determination. And I also I grew up with uh, my mum was quite before her time and we had a homeopath rather than a GP. Well, we had both, but. So I did embrace the big guns of chemo, radiation, surgery, but I also explored every other alternative therapy I could, including homeopathy, hypnotherapy, art, Reiki, energy healing, everything that I could. Also music, because that's the big part of who I am. And I feel that that cobbled together integrative approach was really necessary for me. When I was reading through the diary, I know that you had recorded a lot of it on your blog. I'm not sure whether it was all of it. I'd followed some of it. But what I loved was the dancing. And I had no idea that you had danced as a young woman. And that came back very strongly, that dancing. And I I could sort of see it. Tell us a little bit more about that. And, of course, the pink bikini. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the dancing, yes, I danced through childhood, through my teenage years, through my youth, and it's a huge part of who I am. I did ballet and then modern dancing, and I lived for dancing. Mm -hmm. So under hypnotherapy, that came out, funnily enough, and I have a very deep sadness about stopping dancing, and I've never really resolved that or come Mm -hmm. to terms with that. And under hypnotherapy, I did, and also decided that um, I should add it 
into my life again. I won't be a ballerina probably at 67. <laughs> <laughs> well, who knows? But I can, I can go back to dancing, yes. And you're quite right, it was a huge part of my life. It is a huge part of my life. Can I interrupt? Mm. I just want to say something very quickly. My dog, Zena, was also a big part of yes. my healing, and I'd, I just want to acknowledge her as well, in case she feels left out. <laughs> oh, no, and we don't want them to feel left out. This all happened it happened in August in 2020, corona hit, so you were isolated. You had to do a lot of introspection. Yes. I want to get to how has this experience changed your life? I think this experience was a huge kick up the backside. And it made me realize that, you know, I was drifting along and doing okay, but procrastinating mm. as we do. And there are lots of things I want to do and I was just leaving them undone. And uh, this diagnosis made me realize that, you know, my time is limited. I do plan to live to be 100. I, and, I really, and dance. <laughs> <laughs> and die of overdose of chocolate cake. <laughs> but but I, I did realize that I was wasting a lot of time and that I needed to grab life with both hands. Mm. And, and you certainly did. And the last word on Archie? Archie is, uh, <laughs> I've actually got a thing. I'm here talking about Archie and he's lazing in the sun exploring his terrain <laughs> but <laughs> yeah but he's fabulous and actually i adore him the whole family adores him gail thank you so much the book is cat therapy it's self-published it's by gail bride and it is a wonderful uplifting story that i think that we can all grab hold of thank you so much for having me thank you for that interview gail and beryl Gail, I have to tell you, I burst out laughing when you stopped to thank your dog so that your dog wouldn't feel left out next to your cat Animals are really remarkable, not just in fiction, but in real life, too. There's so much research about how they can genuinely sniff out when people are feeling ill. I've recently read two books that feature remarkable dogs for different reasons. One of them I'll review at the end of the show. But first, I want to talk about the latest novel by Michiel Haynes, which features a dog named Robbie, among other characters, of course. Now, Michiel Haynes is a remarkable feature in South Africa's literary landscape. He's an exceptional author, an academic, and one of the country's greatest literary translators. Hen's fifth novel, called Lost Ground, was published in 2011 and was awarded both the Herman Charles Bosman Award for English Fiction and the Sunday Times Fiction Prize for 2012. And now he's just launched his 10th novel, which is called Each Mortal Thing, and it's published by Umuzi Books. On reading it, I've confirmed my suspicion that Michiel Haynes doesn't know how to disappoint a reader. I've read and loved most of his novels, and I can recommend them all, and now I can add each mortal thing to that pile and also add it to my shelf of books that I want to keep and reread. The novel has his classic wry, dry humour, which makes you smile in recognition of the human truths he unearths. It's high-end literary fiction, so it comes with great use of language and is full of smart ideas and original dialogue. Haynes also managed a very tight plot. At one point while I was reading, I actively raced through a chapter because he had me on tender hooks. A pot could have boiled over, a train could have left without me. I would have definitely missed the start of a meeting if I had one lined up. I couldn't breathe till I found out what happened. This book tells the story of a young university lecturer in London named Terence, who hosts a South African award-nominated author from a small Karoo town when she travels to London to attend the awards show. At around about the same time, Terence befriends a homeless man sleeping rough on the streets of London with his dog, who I mentioned earlier, Robbie. 
This book explores human connections, the fates, furies and frailties of the literary world, and I was charmed by the translation theme that runs through the veins of the novel, an homage to the other work Hans is so good at. Yes, yeah, near, I can recommend this book for sure. It's called Each Mortal Thing, and it's by Michiel Hans, published by Moosey Books. If you've missed any of the reviews, interviews, or titles that featured on today's show, Mzu has kindly loaded the show as a podcast on fmr.co.za, so you can listen to it there. And did you know, FMR is also available as an app in the App Store, so that makes it even easier to tune into the show every second Tuesday.
enjoyed that, it was another Cole Porter classic called Night and Day, sung by Virginia Oersthazen. Book Choice on Fine Music Radio is sponsored by Exclusive Books and will be here till one o'clock with me, your host, chatting more about books. Our next interview is boldly led by Vanessa Levenstein. She was in the studio recently chatting to John Schlaberberski, and this is about his new book, When They Came For Me. It's the hidden diary of an apartheid prisoner. Welcome to the show, Vanessa and John. The 2023 Jewish Literary Festival was held on the 21st of March, a significant day in South African history because it's linked to the events of Sharpville. It was especially chilling as one of the sessions was named The Personal in the Political, and an author who was part of this panel was John Schlapperberski. In 1969, when John was a student at Witz, he was arrested for opposing apartheid. He was tortured detained in solitary confinement, and then deported. He's written a book about this experience called When They Came For Me, The Hidden Diary of an Apartheid Prisoner. Joining us today via Zoom from London is John. Welcome, John, to Find Music Radio's Book Choice. Thank you, Vanessa. The question, I know you've been asked this before, but why write the book now? Well, I started writing the book 50 years after the events of the time and was prompted to do so by the unexpected experience that befell me when I visited the NASA space station in Houston, Texas. Now, it's a long way from Pretoria where I was detained, but the connection is that whilst I was in prison, the NASA program landed astronauts on the moon. And I knew nothing about it. I was in prison. I'd been um, arrested at a lecture at Wits because the police hadn't been able to establish exactly where I lived. And they were very keen to get hold of me. At the time, they must have thought I had vital information about underground activity. In fact, they were very disappointed. There was nothing they could extract from me that had any relevance to any of their concerns. That didn't have any bearing on how they chose to treat me. And so they arrested me at Wits. They spent a week interrogating me and for most of that week I was kept awake and on my feet and for much of the time on my feet I was made to stand on a brick under a bright light in front of a desk with interrogating officers going through a four-hour routine two people would come interrogate me for four hours they would go be replaced by another two and then the third pair would come at the end of a 12-hour cycle this process would start again Mm -hmm. and it went on from the Friday afternoon of my arrest until the following Wednesday afternoon, at which point I was moved across to Pretoria Local Prison. By the time I got there, I was so sleep-deprived, I was really out of my mind, and I must have slept for probably a day and a half or even two, and woke up not knowing where on earth I was or why I was there. Now, this is a long answer (laughs) to your question, why write the book now? But the precipitating incentive to document it myself arose when I was at the NASA space station for a tourist visit. I'd been invited to Houston to present another book I'd written. I'm a psychotherapist and I train psychotherapists and I'd been invited to the USA to present this book when the guide taking us around took us to the Apollo building and showed us the control room from which they'd managed the moon landing. He said, pointing to a little brown speaker, Inside the sealed-off control room, that's the speaker through which Neil Armstrong's voice reached the world. One small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. I was very moved because whilst it went out all over the world, it didn't reach me. And um, during the course of that day in prison, 21st or 22nd of July, 
One of the prison officers who took me for my half an hour exercise in the prison yard said to me, we, we spoke to each other in Afrikaans, and he said, they were on the moon last night, you know. And I said, who? And he said, those astronauts, the Americans. And that night, I tried to hoist myself up to the prison window to try and see if I could view the moon, but it was on the wrong side of the prison. It was a half moon, and it was up very late. There was no light from the moon. There were just these bright, shining prison lights everywhere. And I feared I, I might not live to ever see the moon again. And it all came back to me when I was amongst others watching this guy tell us about the, uh, the moon landing. But I realized in that moment that my own life history was really very different to the folk I was amongst. And mm -hmm. the history of being so traumatized and so deeply engaged in human rights struggle is actually quite alienating when you're amongst people who've never had to fight for their lives. Which you did. Indeed. John, that's a very beautiful answer to the question. And there's a lot of beauty, there's a lot of pain in this book, but what comes across, and I really want our listeners to hear this, is your empathy and is your humanity. You write about standing on the brick. I found a way of making terms with the brick. And under my breath, I spoke to it as things continued. I learned to say to it, if you don't hurt me, I promise to stand on you as gently as I can. Now, you were 21 years old. Where did you find this humanity and this inner strength? Oh, that's a, that's a good question, Vanessa. I can't tell you where I found it, but it was there to be found. It must have had a lot to do with my upbringing. We were a family that sided with the people suffering injustice. We have a, a long history of this. We grew up in Joburg in the 1950s yeah. under the shadow of the Holocaust. And when I was writing this memoir and facing myself with the very questions, Vanessa, that you've just put yeah. to me, where these resources come from, the memories that came back to me as sources of strength go back to Lithuania during the Holocaust. Linking what happened to you at 21 and the incredible work you've done with torture victims in your adult life and your book, How Important is Testament and Being Heard to the Healing Process? Well, when, when I go into the testimonial aspects of our history, in the massacre of the Jews of Kedan, one of the townsfolk hidden in a barn under a pile of logs the men drew lots as to which one would take the risk of being covered up with a log pile. They thought they could get away with hiding one of them. And this man named Chaim Ronder was hidden under the log pile. And from there, he could look out through the slats of the barn and see the executions taking place. That testimony, he passed on after the war to one of the only rabbinic survivors of the Kovna Ghetto, Rabbi Ephraim Oshri, who wrote a really important testimonial manuscript called Hurban Lita, written in Yiddish. Its full title is The Destruction of the Sacred Communities of the Jews of Lithuania. And in it, the fate of my great-uncle, Sodik, who defied instructions to strip the side of the pit. And when they came to strip him forcefully, he attacked them and killed two of them before they killed him. Watching all this was Chaim Ronda from his log pile, and he's passed the news on to us of how our great-uncle met his end, and he's celebrated as one of the heroes of Lithuanian Jewry, a Jew who would not go to his death like lambs to the slaughter. And that element of not only defiance but testimony has become an incorporated part of my own makeup.
I just want to thank you for your bravery, for your courage and your humanity. And I want to say to people listening, When They Came For Me, The Hidden Diary of an Apartheid Prisoner by John Schlapperberski covers the most intensely disturbing, traumatic experiences. But contrasted with that is this man's incredible strength, his humanity, his love, and that shines through. Just like the moon, John, which is quite ironic when you were talking about the moon. I thought just like the moon inspired you to write this book, you shine like the moon. So thank you. Vanessa, thank you for these touching words and sensitive appreciation. I really value this and I value the chance to be heard amongst my countrymen and women in South Africa. track was another one in our big Cole Porter collection this month. 
It was called Easy to Love, and it was sung by Al Bowley. Can't go wrong with a bit of Cole Porter. As we head into the end of the show, and before we play out, I want to tell you about a book I just finished reading. This is a debut novel, and it's by an author named Sven Axelrod. I'm going to give you a second to grab a pen before I repeat his name. So his name is Sven Axelrod, and this new book is called Buried Treasure. I have to tell you that I think this author, I'm going to say his name again, Sven Axelrod, just in case you missed it the first two times. I think that this author is one of the best new literary talents to come out of South Africa this year, maybe even longer. His book is literary fiction. It's set in a fictional place called Vivo, and it tells the story of the master of cemeteries, a dog named God, a bunch of very confused ghosts, and a strange serial killing stabber thing all hosted by this very unique narrator who's like the ringmaster of the whole circus of interesting dead and alive characters. It's a very different kind of book. I'm not sure I've read anything quite like it before. It is a dark and graphic, it's explicit, but it's also clever and funny as hell in places, if you'll pardon the pun. The book explores what our names mean to us, which, you know, it appealed to me, but then as a writer named Paige, it would appeal to me. It's a unique tale, beautifully told. I think if you were a fan of the book Lincoln in the Bardo, which is by George Saunders, I think you might enjoy it. Although, like I said, it's not like anything I've ever read before. I wonder what Axelrod is working on next. Uh, Actually, it doesn't matter. Whatever it is, I'll buy it and read it. And so with that, we head into the end of our show and our final track. I want to thank you, our listener. Without you, there definitely wouldn't be a show. I also want to thank our sponsors, Exclusive Books. Of course, without them, there wouldn't be a show. I want to thank all our wonderful reviewers. Without them, there wouldn't be a show. And of course, our clever authors and very patient Mzu Maketa, who built today's show. Without all of these people, there wouldn't be a show. We're playing out with True Love, which is our last Cole Porter track for the show, sung by Eve Boswell. And we'll be back in two weeks' time with Book Choice, Publisher's Choice. Until then, happy reading. give to you and you give to me
nothing to do but to give to you and to give to me Choice was brought to you by Exclusive Books, celebrating getting more books to more people. The Exclusive Books recommend selection makes it easy. By curating 25 of the most talked about and trending books hitting the shelves, you can, with one glance, get a snapshot of everything hot in the world of books, locally and internationally. Exclusive Books also sell gifts, vouchers, stationery and more. Pop into your nearest exclusive books and feast your eyes. For more information or to purchase online, visit exclusivebooks.co.za.